History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after-show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, number 64, Noel in Malta during the Atomic Age. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out, or else there will be spoilers ahead. Ah, we're ready. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir, and I am here in the HHE studio with the open fire to my roasted nuts. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Oh my lord, I'm tickling your nuts, am I? (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I was talking about roast chestnuts, Peter. Of course. We are joined, as ever, by the Dickensian dignitary of December. It's the judge himself. It's Mr. Paul Dursley. I was wondering whether there's a nightclub called Bar Humbug. <laughs> <laughs> Clubbing on Christmas Eve at Bar Humbug. <laughs> the Humbug Bar. I love <laughs> it. That's great. Now, Peter, I was putting up some mistletoe on the ceiling yesterday when I fell off the ladder and I banged my head. And now I've forgotten everything you said during the episode. Oh, no. So would you mind reminding me what happened in, let's say, I don't know, the time it takes to jingle some bells? I can do that, Ryan. I'll start when, when shall I start? We'll do it now. Okay, I took us to Mediterranean Malta to cover the topic of Noel, and on the way we learned that small but important role Malta played in bringing the Cold War to an end. We discovered a traditional Maltese Christmas, including nativity scenes and the traditional meal of snails, rabbit and lasagna. We met Envin Cremona, who put his stamp on Maltese art history, heard the traditional Christmas sound of the frightening four-legged Maltese bagpipe, and met the Maltese bees who gave the land of honey its name. And we tried eating some dog treats, but the less said about that, the better. week's episode done summarize nicely nice one son now we're over to a young dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of me he'll take you apart without any care he's the lovely paul dursley the lovely paul dursley If I receive any dog treat in the post, <laughs> your score will go down considerably. <laughs> Overall, it was a fantastic episode, Pete. I learned, I laughed, I loved. But you know what? It matters not a jot what I think. A jot? Not a jot. We're here for the opinion of just one man, Pete, and that man is the Honourable Judge Dursley. Now, Paul, did you think this episode was a cracker or was it just a soggy slice of figgy pudding? Oh, it's probably a cracker joke. Oh, no. Is that good? (laughs) I'm not sure what that means. Generally hilarious, I think. The word pathetic came to mind. (laughs) (laughs) Full of Christmas spirit, I see, Judge Dursley. (laughs) Uh, Not yet, not yet. A bit too early. I thought it was a very early little Christmas present wrapped up for me personally because I got gifts. I, there was an advent calendar. Uh, I, I assume you did the same and you sent, you sent some to Paul. Well, you see, Ryan, as part of the overall failure of Christmas, not only did I fail to get the big box of Maltese goodies, which was going to be your gift, which ended up with my you real having gift. three used postage stamps <laughs> and a dog treat, uh, I also didn't have time to send any bribey, not even a beer, to poor Mr. Dursley. So I'm going to have to stand and fail on my own merits this week. Well, you could have blamed the post office, but you were honest. I'm going to take it on the chin. I, there just simply wasn't time or capability. 
Yeah. Um, Pete, didn't your advent calendar have six doors? No, it had five doors, I think. It had I'm five. sure you said six. I think I said four. I definitely said <laughs> I definitely said it wrong at one point. So my counting ability isn't what it could be, let's be honest. Okay, okay. okay. Factual accuracy, Pete. <laughs> Our <laughs> listeners have come to expect. I think we, it's better to focus on the quality of the facts, such as a musical instrument made from a dog, Paul. That was good stuff, wasn't it? Yes, I was just envisaging you blowing a pussy and getting some noise out of it. These days, or more recently, they have used calf or goat. So the dogs and cats are a long t- a time gone by now. Okay, well, they, they didn't they used to have wall up live cats in buildings for good luck? Yeah. Not for the cat, of course. <laughs> yeah, it makes you wonder what constitutes luck in that sense of in what, what aspect of this do you think is lucky? Because the cat doesn't have a good time and now you've got a cat in your wall, which seems also bad. I mean, I felt yeah. terrible because as you were telling me about, you know, a full size skinned dog being blown up and then used as a musical instrument, all I kept thinking was a whoopee cushion. Because uh, <laughs> you could get away with it. It'd just sit there on the couch and everyone, you know, you'd think that it was just a... A lovely dog and then when well no wait this is where my plan falls down because people don't tend to just sit on dogs do they not as a rule no <laughs> it's something to be avoided dogs do fart a lot so but i thought what i thought was interesting was that the a bagpipe type instrument was overall because you always think bagpipes as being scottish or irish mm. to think that it's gone all the way over to malta in one way or another is uh, quite interesting i thought well i'm, I'm not just sure I, th- I think bagpipes is a pretty generic didn't they have them in the one of the south american cult as Aztecs or Inca? I suppose ultimately it's a flute with a bag of air attached yeah, to it. Yeah, it's, which it's just a, an augmented flute, exactly. So with a reservoir of air. Yeah, and I'm guessing that it probably would have used something similar as like bellows for a fire to sort of pump, yes, pump and air the, so into they a would have done it once and put their finger over the end and got the farting sound first of all and laughed right. and then sort of thought, I wonder if I could modify this. Yeah. Give, give me a flute. I'm going to shove it inside this dog. <laughs> that was a weird conversation they had that day. And, but it worked. And they're like, oh, well, okay. Fair Bear enough. with me. I've had an Just idea. Trust me, guys. This will be awesome. <laughs> Question for you. What if you were to put a dog whistle in a Zach's? That seems cruel. <laughs> As the other dogs come running and there's kind of a dog there, but yeah. it's got a horn for a head no right but they won't know what it is that is highly confusing for the dogs that is an act of cruelty ryan oh all right (laughs) could you get several like in a row like an organ has different pipes so you could just have like 15 dogs with these (laughs) you just squeeze them all and they'd all make a different note I'm, I'm not sure. Like a dog <laughs> orchestra. Like a dog orchestra. <laughs> and these are live dogs you're squeezing, are you? No, it's Zach's, the instruments. <laughs> I see. Live dogs, how's that helping? You're adding an awful lot of admin to playing this instrument I'm instead of having one you under could, your arm. If you could make one, then you could create a contraption that would hold maybe 15 of them. Right. Not like a one-man band type thing. I'm it not sounds a lot walk, like a one-man no, no, band no, no. type thing. I'm not thing. saying walk down the street with 15 <laughs> inflated dogs. <laughs> One under your foot, one under each arm. So I, I guess the bigger dogs would make lower sounds, wouldn't they? So you'd have, you could have like a, a chihuahua for the high notes and a right. little Maltese for the medium high, <laughs> and uh, Saint Bernard for the really low one. <laughs> I can feel the animal lovers writing in already. <laughs> We're not suggesting people do it, but if they did, I'd be fascinated to hear a dog orchestra. But you shouldn't do it. No dog orchestras, please. <laughs> Please don't set Peter on us. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on. 
So, Peter, you oriented us to Malta itself. Very much so. And you asked me what some of the famous Maltese things. I did. And I struggled. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Do you remember? I was what? genuinely shocked <laughs> that you failed to come up with anything. Well, I did. I came up with two things. Dom Mintoff. <laughs> what? Dom Mintoff. Dom Mintoff, Dom Mintoff was, was a... Uh, Prime Minister. Correct. Of Malta. Malta. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> For a long time. Yeah, because oh, right. he he was actually sort of the the proponent of Enosis, the union with Britain. But after that, he then became really anti-British for some weird reason. Was it him who ended up snuggling up to Libya and North Korea? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Funny enough, he went to the same college as I did. Well, there you go. Well, and I would like to point out that he was a man, and I said Maltese man. Yes, you did. That was Selection. one of your guesses. It was. Maltese man. Yes. I thought that was a thing. Because people are always saying that, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the first thing that I did say was Popeye. Yes. And that genuinely was the first thing that came into your head. It really was. Yeah. Oh. I was both impressed and horrified in equal measure. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I went back and fact-checked, and I have some Popeye facts. <laughs> Popeye facts! <laughs> so, I, I was right. Filmed in 1980. I got it spot on exactly. Nice. Uh, the live-action musical film Popeye was filmed in Malta, specifically the town of Marsexlock. <laughs> <laughs> the town of where? Yeah, now you've come across the difficulty of pronouncing Maltese <laughs> names and words, haven't you? <laughs> Marsexlock. Marsaxlock. I think the X is a ch sound. Oh, okay. Marsaxlock. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound better to me. Anyway, regardless, it is a small fishing village. It's in the southeast coast of Malta. It's about 20 kilometres from the capital city of Valletta. It is known for its traditional colourful houses, narrow streets and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's very beautiful. And it drew the attention of movie director Robert Altman. And he was in the process of looking for locations for his new film, Popeye. And so he and his crew came along, 165 of them. They worked over seven months building a huge set. 19 buildings, in fact, were built on a rocky cliff overlooking this cove. And 7,000 wooden planks were imported from the Netherlands. Eight tons of nails were used. And 2,000 US gallons of paint were used to create these buildings. What was wrong with a good old British gallon of paint? Uh, it became known as Popeye Village, and it's still in use today. What for? It is a, a, an open-air museum, a seaside resort, and you can even book it for your wedding venue. That's great, because I've lost count of the number of times someone said to me, do you remember the 1980 film Popeye? I'd really love to see where that was filmed. <laughs> I'd like to get married there. <laughs> yeah, but it's there. You can go. Um, so some uh, Popeye the movie facts. Dustin Hoffman was originally cast as Popeye, but he backed out and Robin Williams, who was then a TV star on the uh, on the show Mork and Mindy, he was cast in his first feature movie as Popeye. He prepared for the role by studying the cartoons, reading the comic strips uh, by E.C. Seeger and working with a vocal coach to perfect the voice. That voice. <laughs> Although he apparently had to redub the voice after all of the filming because when they went to the edit bay, they just couldn't understand a word of what he was saying. <laughs> so he also needed stitches when he was hit on the head with a can of spinach <laughs> when, it was, when it was thrown for him to catch by another actor. He 
you just missed it entirely and it clunked him on the head. So he was they, they had to shut down production for a couple of weeks. But his performance got him a nomination for a Golden Globe as Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy, which was the same year that Steve Martin was nominated for The Jerk. My primary recollection of the film Popeye is one of being just unsettled by the whole thing. Yes, Robert Altman is well known for his aesthetic being slightly <laughs> strange. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very peculiar film. And if you've not seen Popeye, I recommend just at least giving it a bit of a go. It didn't do very well when it came out, but it was nominated for two Academy Awards and has gained a bit of a cult following, apparently, in recent years because of that weird aesthetic that oh. people have sort of gone back to him and been like, oh, it's actually not too bad. But uh, yeah, Popeye's arms, the prosthetics that uh, Robin Williams wore on his arms, that, that they didn't work. So for the, the beginning of the film, uh, he had to wear a big yellow fishing jacket <laughs> just to cover his arms <laughs> until they actually got some new prosthetics. And, <laughs> and finally, the last thing here, Shelley Duval, uh, she played Olive Oil. Popeye's girlfriend and uh, she was very close with Robin Williams um, but recently she's said a few very strange things about him uh, she believes that Robin Williams is still alive and is living his life as a shapeshifter well I mean it's nice to think that Robin's still with us I wish he was still with us I don't know I, I always found him quite scary we find you quite scary <laughs> <laughs> Robin you're sorely missed you are indeed what about Popeye as a character? Is that a I didn't thing never you have felt, a connection with? No, I've never felt the need for a Popeye film. It didn't seem like something particularly didn't need a live action version of. Never really seen the appeal of Popeye, to be honest with you. I like the idea of someone gaining, gaining their powers by eating greens, though. It's a good, healthy message for kids. For children. Because especially from those days when it could have been, frankly, cocaine or something. <laughs> 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 it would have been a very different Popeye. Yes, his pipe would be thinner. <laughs> so, I'd like to talk about stamps. Ah, Envin Cremona, the stamp guy. So I made the comment about whether or not you actually draw the stamp full size, like an actual stamp size. Like, do you have to get a little microscope and draw your little painting? You or, did. Or is it a big painting and then you scan it down? In hindsight, I see that that was a stupid thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so stamps are usually first submitted by artists in the form of a sketch. Uh, that's then reviewed and considered um, in line with sort of postal service guidelines. Um, so will it fit down to the size of the stamp? Is it an image that we actually want? That sort of thing. A final design is then selected. The artist then refines that, finalizes the artwork. They adjust the colors and the detail within it to make sure that it reproduces well on the stamp. And then the final artwork is then provided to the postal service. They then scan the image or they upload the digital file or whatever to their printer and away they go. And there's your stamps. That's kind of the process for it. So that must have been actual plate photography back in the day, presumably, because it wasn't digital files. Yeah. Back in the day, I don't know how they did it, but uh, I think yeah. it's called something like microgravure or something the process for which they produced little images do you know what that stamps. do you know what that involves i think it's a reduc a reduction process because certainly they were used in stamps in the sort of 50s 60s and 70s but i suppose you know the era of the stamp is dead i mean they're still in use i hope so because i've got four of them <laughs> <laughs> oh yes <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you've got to, but they're all worthless now because the picture's changed. Yeah, good point. The Queen's head is now no longer the Queen's head on it. Collector's items, you say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, along with the 40 billion others. <laughs> but look, there are some famous and collectible Maltese stamps. Uh, the Knights of Malta stamps issued in 1964. They celebrated Malta's independence from Britain. They feature images of the Knights of the Order of Malta. Apparently those are super uh, collectible. The Malta Under Siege stamps issued during World War II featuring images of Maltese fortifications and soldiers. They're famous because they were sort of produced during a time of danger and hardship. And then there's the Flora and Fauna stamps issued in 1970 featuring images of Maltese plants and animals. But the Post Office stamps issued in 1858 are considered the rarest and most valuable stamps in Maltese history. In 1858, a contract was given to Thomas Delarue and Co. in London to produce Malta's first postage stamp design. Commissioning artist Jean-Ferdinand Joubert Delafer, he engraved an image of Queen Victoria and that was then used for a halfpenny stamp, which was then used in Malta for the next 25 years until 1885 when control of the postal administration there transferred from London to local authorities back in Malta and a new series of stamps were designed. Now, today, only a few examples are known to exist of this stamp, and it is highly sought after by collectors, with the last stamp sold at auction selling for $3,000. Wow, so check your postcards from Malta, people, and see if, if it looks like Queen Victoria might be sitting on a gold mine. It may well be. Um, although I did do a quick search of eBay, which shows a mint hinged, i.e. it's not been ripped from the stamp sheet, uh, triple crown 10 shilling stamp from Malta with certificate of authenticity and that's selling for 5000 Well, I looked into getting you an Envin Cremona stamp as a gift. Oh, nice. But for similar reasons, you got regular old British postage stamps. <laughs> How much are they selling for? I, I struggled to find any for a sale, actually, funny ah, enough. Okay. But uh, anything I could find was thousands. I think they're about 96 pence each. I'm picturing a heist movie with the three of us working out how we're going to steal an Envin stamp from a collector. <laughs> Can't be. Do, do, it's do, probably do, quite do, easy do, do, to do. secrete it on one's person. Yeah, you just lick it, stick it to yourself, and away you go. <laughs> Hollywood's knocking, Ryan. <laughs> the Maltese heist. So we spoke on the episode about the Maltese dog. Uh, so I did some reading up on them. Officially, they are known as the Maltese Terriers. They are small, white little lap dogs uh, known for being playful, affectionate. They are small in size, relatively low energy levels. Uh, they have a long, silky coat, which are prone to shedding, so they require a lot of regular grooming. They are known to be fearless and intelligent and easy to train, which makes them good for being near children. But you said they were stupid. You said they came 64th out of 84. I did say that. And I've also seen websites that said that it was intelligent. So I think people who like them think they're intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, look, they have a lifespan of about 12 to 15 years, but they do have uh, some issues with dental and respiratory issues, which means that they can sometimes often live uh, less than that. Uh, but they are charming. They make great companions. And that's perhaps why there have been several famous Maltese terriers. So the most well-known 
is a dog called Trouble. Now, Trouble is a dog owned by Leona Helmsley. She was a billionaire, hotelier, and real estate investor. She lived in Florida in the United States. Now, Helmsley was known for a lavish lifestyle, and she had a strong personality, and she also loved her companion pet, her dog. And she loved that dog so much that when she passed away in 2007, she left Trouble $12 million in a trust fund, making him one of the wealthiest dogs in the world. And he needs someone to look after him. Dog can't be wealthy. Well, look, so Trouble then lived a life of luxury. He had a uh, a lavish home with a full-time caregiver. <laughs> yeah, I bet there was a lot of applicants for that job. <laughs> there were. But apparently a judge came along and said that he needed to relook at this inheritance <laughs> and it was reduced. Well, judges are very sensible people. Yes, they are, yeah. <laughs> and it was reduced by the judge to just $2 million, uh, with the rest being donated to various charities. So Trouble lived just on $2 million um, until he passed away in 2011 at the age of 12 years old. And as per Holmesley's will, he was buried next to her in the family mausoleum, which she had paid $3 million for to ensure that it would be maintained in perpetuity. Wow. Now, my observation on that is that is a terrible name for a dog, because if you misplace your dog, he runs off. Mm. You have to go around telling everyone you're looking for trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Ryan. I have done the people of Malta, the early man people of Malta, a disservice. Oh. Uh, I described their Neolithic temples as just some piles of rocks. You really did, yeah. Uh, which, having actually looked back at it and looked at some of the sites that are available in Malta, which, of which there are many, mm-hmm. uh, I've done them a huge dis- disservice. <laughs> uh, the the one in particular that I was looking at is uh, Gantia, which is a megalithic temple complex, again from the Neolithic era, which we I think we mentioned. It's very clearly a temple. It's got these kind of clover pattern, these semicircular rooms, mm-hmm. and it looks pretty impressive, actually. It does look like a proper building and it is not just a pile of rocks so sorry malta i did your megalithic temples a giant disservice they are of course a unesco world heritage site so perhaps i shouldn't have been so rude about them so presumably they got the rock from the island they didn't like transport it across the sea i think so they They think they imported it from the netherlands (laughs) (laughs) along with eight tons of nails (laughs) it's a very unsettling site uh the temples they're they're actually believed to be associated with fertility rights as a lot of these things are they find figurines and statues in the locations and apparently according to local folklore this particular site in Gantia is supposed to have been built by a giantess who ate nothing but broad beans and honey but apparently she had a baby with a man from the regular sized people I don't know how that works Uh, and then with her child hanging from her shoulder she built the temples and used them as places of worship so it was a giant who established these things which is pretty common I think in these old stone age structures I have actually been to a Maltese Stone Age temple. We did a tour of it and there was one of those audio commentaries and it was very apparent very early in the tour that they hadn't got the faintest idea what any of these things were for. Because the, you'd go into an area and go, this area we think was a temple with a shrine or a kitchen. It might have been a living room. <laughs> Could have been just a cupboard. <laughs> don't really we don't really know but we found this in it and this is a figurine of a larger lady which we think is a fertility rite it might be a toy could just be a rock we just don't know <laughs> yeah i mean that's the problem with early man is that it's so far back 
and they were just using rocks. It makes it very difficult to sort of carbon date these things to sort of know when they were really put there. Would it have killed them to leave a note? Yeah, like a rock with something written in it. <laughs> yeah, guys, this was the temple. <laughs> Peter, you spoke about nativity scenes. I did, or cribs as they are known to the Maltese people. Or cribs, indeed. Or naivety scenes, as I call them. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, and we spoke specifically about that real-world village. We did, yes. The nativity scene in Malta. Well, that got me curious, (laughs) as you can imagine. So I wanted to just sort of see what it looked like. But then as I was like just looking at images of that village that's been created, it got me wondering, I'm like, well, why do people do this in the first place? Like, why not just have like an image of it? on the wall, right? Why do we have these little diorama type models? Well, apparently it all started in the 13th century. It was the result of St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, He was an Italian friar and preacher who was known for bringing sort of Christian faith to the masses. And according to his biographer, St. Bonaventure, uh, who was a Franciscan monk who was born five years before Francis's death. Anyway, he said that in 1220, Francis had traveled to the Holy Land and there he had seen where Jesus was born. And he was said to be so moved by the experience of being there and seeing it that he thought that other people should see it too. He's like, but most people at that time weren't going to be able to travel all the way to the Holy Land. And so he came upon the idea, I will bring it to them. And that's kind of what happened. So in 1223, he sought and got permission from Pope Honorus III to set up a manger complete with a baby Jesus, a Mary, a Joseph and live animals in a cave in his village of Grecio in Italy. Now, with the Pope's approval, he set up the nativity scene and he invited villagers to come and look upon it. Now, this captive audience was then an opportunity for him to sort of do his thing. And there he preached about, in quotes, the babe of Bethlehem, which is what he called Jesus, because apparently he became too overcome with emotion to say the name Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so uh, St. Francis's uh, nativity scene was super popular and it became tradition for people to then just set up the scene themselves in their own towns and then eventually within their own homes during Christmas. And side note, Saint Bonaventure, he claims that the hay that Francis used to line the manger somehow acquired miraculous powers and was then used afterwards to cure local diseases. Tap of the hay, job done. Nice. Okay, well, look, we have come to the end of the line, Peter. It is time for you to step into the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes, I am. Then, please, will the defendant rise? I will. Your Honour, as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on factual content. I a lot of interesting facts about... Malta itself and its history, which I didn't know. I'd have liked a bit more about World War Two and the sterling effort that Malta did to in the war to help helping helping the war. Because my God, that island took a hell of a pounding. But I'm still going to give it a C. 
see. No, no. You know what I with that? I feel cheated. Really? I think that was a perfectly fine grade. I'm going to pull it back on entertainment value, I think. Okay. Well, then let's ask. Uh, Your Honour, may we have your verdict on entertainment value? Were you entertained by some of the sections? Were there fascinating new things that you'd not heard before and you were thrilled by? I got rather bored about your website address. (laughs) Which one's that? Well, are you going to remind me of it? (laughs) But uh, what about the rest of it? So were you entertained by the inflatable dog? The story of the honeybees? Was this surprising information to you? The inflatable dog was, yes. The dog pipes, you can call them. (laughs) The Maltese dog pipes. So will that be reflected in the grade? I think it might. So can I have your grade for entertainment value? Okay, for entertainment value, I will give you a... B. Whoa! Very happy with that. Okay, Your Honour, may I now have your verdict on Dursley Factor. Were you tickled by it? Not really. Christmas is not my favourite time of year, you know. Yeah, you were onto a loser with that one, Pete. Yeah, I've got the humbug season, the humbug episode. <laughs> well, it's the same every year, and the same things happen every year, but, you know, you get all of this looking back on this, that, or the other. And, um, uh, the factor, I'll give it a D. A D. D. Christmas dragged you down I got, there. I got sucker-punched by Santa there. Krampus, more like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, look, there we are. Those are the uh, individual grades, but now we have reached the final verdict. So, Peter, before the judge passes his verdict, you have an opportunity now to enter a short plea. (laughs) If you choose to do so, please make that plea now. Well, notwithstanding the playable puppy, I'd like you to think about the episode you could have had, which was a selection of relatively ordinary people, all called Noel, who have some passing association with the island of Malta. But I did not go down that road. I brought you facts, history, and delightful knowledge. So I think I deserve probably an A+. Wow. Thank you, Peter. You may sit back down. (laughs) I probably should. I quite like the idea of lots of knolls. I thought that that would have sort of left field would be very good. Would have been very good. (laughs) (laughs) Your Your Honour, the defendant stands before you. Have you reached a final verdict? Yes, I have. In which case, I would ask most respectfully for your ruling. For Christmas in Malta in the so-called Atomic Age, which according to you we are still in, I think the Anthropocene is probably a better term, but we'll give that a miss. I will give Peter a... C+. How about C for Christmas? That's what it was. That's A C plus is very nearly a B, Pete. It's a thoroughly acceptable score. I will put it into my stocking. No, my sack of grades with pride. Yeah, good for you. Congratulations, Peter. Well done. Thank you. Okay, well, look, there you go. That is our show for this week. So if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on the show, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. Yeah, and one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation, it really goes a long way to help bring in the show to new listeners. And if you're on Mastodon, 
TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. You can find us at HHE Podcast. And breaking news, the big box of Maltese treats that I ordered and failed to arrive has now arrived. Hooray! So we will have a little sample of those things and uh, post them on those social media sites. But we are going to be back again soon-ish. Not with a main episode, but with our end of the year quiz. Quiz of the year! Yeah, this is the show where Peter wins because he is smarter than me and will remember more things about all of the episodes that we've covered over the past 25 episodes in 2022. I'm very excited about it. It's going to, it's everything to play for, Ryan. Yeah. But of course, we will be back with our main episode in 2023, which will be episode 65, Sleep in Mexico during the Middle Ages. So in the meantime, a huge thank you to the judge himself. Thank you, Paul. Humbug. And a happy Christmas to you too. (laughs) And a happy Christmas to you, Pete. Happy Christmas to you, Ryan. And a Merry Christmas to all. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... Talking about saints, Ryan, one of the things I didn't cover was there is an actual Maltese... There's actually two Maltese saints, but you know how you normally think of saints as being kind of medieval characters, like St. Francis, as you just said, was a long, long time ago? Sure. Uh, Actually, Malta has a relatively modern saint. It's exciting. It is, it is. It's a guy called George Preker, who was born in Valletta in 1880. He studied at the Lyceum and the secondary school, and he went to the seminary. He got ill, and then God healed him. Normal sainty stuff, really. But what I thought was interesting was he he died in 1962, and he was made a saint in 2001. He's a new saint, newly minted saint for the island of Malta. So I guess people get together and go, you know what, posthumously we should make him a saint. Or yeah, it's you generally become posthumous. a saint after you. Yeah, I think you have to be dead to become a saint. Okay. And so he achieved that. <laughs> so we can't make Saint Dursley? No, not yet. Not until we kill him. He also needs to have two, at Idea. least two miracles attributed to him that have been thoroughly investigated by the authorities. There's a miracle I'm doing. This is one thing. <laughs> exactly. I was just going to say the same thing. <laughs> well, do you know what would be a miracle? Maybe an A grade for a Christmas podcast. That won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> A miracle would be if I get an A grade. <laughs> <laughs>